and welcome to the Inspired Jewish Woman Podcast. I absolutely love and value that you are here with us right now, and I hope you will hear something on today's episode that will touch your heart and soul in a beautiful way. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Jewish Women Weekly Podcast. Today, I have Beth Perkel with me from Skokie, Illinois, just not too far away from where I'm living. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So great to have you. I heard about you well before I met you. Beth is a freelance writer, a writing consultant, the author of a new book that just came out, which is amazing. It's called Light at the Beginning of the Tunnel. It's about wiring our children for happiness. We're going to be talking about that today. She was first published at what, the age of 17 (laughs) by international magazines. And she won writing contests by the age of 19. And wow, your passion for learning and psychology and writing and all of this that you've done, international psychology research that you conducted, that's incredible. There's so much here in your bio. I've been reading your writing in the Mishpacha magazine for a couple of years already, but I know you also contribute to the Chicago Tribune, Jerusalem Post, the Newsweek magazine, Times of Israel, Ish.com the Jewish press, it goes on and on, right? So, wow, it is such an honor to have you here. And we are excited to to hear some of what has inspired you to make this book happen. You gave birth to your first book. I know that you've contributed to many books in the past, but this is a passion of yours, this topic. And as how many years have you been a parent for? I've been a parent for 14 and a half years, almost 14 and a half years. Our sons are actually in the same class. They are. That's right. That's right. This book has really been in the works, I would say, for 32 years in some ways. I first knew I wanted to be a writer. Believe it or not, in first grade, I had an amazing teacher who told me when I turned in my first 14-page story in the first grade that I was going to be a writer someday. And believe it or not, that same teacher came to my wedding. And as part of her wedding present, she actually had saved one of my stories. And she gave it to me. And I really (laughs) talk about a teacher who shows she really believes in her students. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Baruch Hashem was really, thank God, it was really an amazing story. But I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I did start publishing when I was 17. It was one of those why not type of stories. I um, submitted a piece to Newsweek and they actually took it. So I really got the ball rolling. So I started freelancing all the way back then. But in terms of this book itself, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I was in something called the University Scholars Program, where they let us as undergraduates do psychology research, and they actually funded our research. And back then, Martin Seligman, who is known as the father of positive psychology, was just publishing Authentic Happiness, which was his first book on positive psychology. And so I was sort of there at the birth of positive psychology. Since then, after I graduated, I really followed the emergence of positive psychology as a field, and I was very passionate about it. Over the years, I had that interest and then became a Rebbitzin. I really saw how it overlapped with a lot of Torah ideas, and I began to give Torah classes that weaved in positive psychology 
And then as I became a parent, I sort of weaved in that thread to the tapestry. And that's what the book does. It kind of weaves those three threads in together and brings them together to have this unique take. You know, there are a lot of books out there, out there obviously, on happiness and teaching children happiness and positive psychology in general. But what I try to do is also weave in the prism, teaching it through the prism of Torah, which brings in, you know, the beautiful Jewish wisdom we have on the topic as well. It's bringing some of the biggest topics all together, right? Parenting, psychology. And one of my favorite parenting stories that I keep thinking about, it'll give you a little chuckle, but it's the story of this father who is in a supermarket with a two-year-old overtired, tantruming son, and he's in the cart and they're almost done. And he's like, we're almost there. A few more minutes. We're just going to get three more things on our list. We're going to be home before you know it. We got this. Come on. We were almost there. And he's just so patient and talking to his son and then just like talking him through it. So this lady notices this whole experience and she goes up to this dad at the checkout counter and the son is throwing things out of the cart and he's going crazy. He's really having a full out tantrum. And this woman says, I just want to tell you, you are such a patient father. You're just incredible. I've been watching you and how you're just so calm and breathing through it and talking to your child. And the man says, I'm not talking to my child. I'm talking to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Like all that encouragement. You're almost there. We're going to be home. We'll take a nap. Come on, get through this. So, so much of parenting, which in my experience, and I'm assuming all the people listening, if they are a parent, they would agree that This is one of the hardest jobs we will have in our entire life. We can be great in every field. We could be a success in the workforce, but bringing it all home and having a happy home and having children that are happy and well-adjusted and it's huge and it's hard and we need tools. So I think what I'm going to ask you to do is give us some of the skills that you talk about in your book, the underrated life skills of parenting, as you call them. And it could be like your top two or three, but like throw us a bone. You've done a lot of research on this topic. You have so much wisdom to share and we are very, very open to receiving right now. We'll take anything. Well, first of all, I, I totally want to touch on what you just said. I remember when I was a young mother, someone asked me, how does it feel to be a mother? And I remember telling them, it feels like everything. Because literally, it's the full gamut of emotions. Of course, you're happy and thrilled, but you're also stressed and anxious. It feels like everything, right? So that's really what parenting is in a nutshell. And it builds also on your story. And I try to do specifically in the book. And what makes it very unique is it's not just about teaching happiness to the children. What makes my book very unique is that I address teaching happiness as an entire family endeavor. It's like the old saying, you know how they say you're only as happy as your least happy child. And then there's also that saying they say to husbands, happy wife, happy life, right? Why do we have all these kind of corny sayings that we say, you know, to certain family members about like, you're only as happy as this family member. It's because all of our happiness is really interlinked when we're in a family, right? As this unit, right? All of our happiness is linked together. So because of that, how I split up the book is by addressing happiness as an all-family endeavor. So the Mm -hmm. first section is actually about understanding our children and really ourselves on an individual level, right? So, you know, I try to make it not a one-size-fits-all. 
So I try to do individualized exercises. For example, I mean, Eve, the last time you bought an appliance, right? When's the last time you bought like a vacuum cleaner and you went online to look up how to use a general vacuum, right? Never. You want to know the specific model number, how to use all the facets of that one, right? So unfortunately, our children don't come with an exact model number and it would be an amazing divine baby shower gift, right? If Hashem gave us the manual for them, but that doesn't happen, right? But what I try to do is give exercises to try to get to a deeper level of understanding them and ourselves better. Do you remember that book that we all read? It was like, what to expect when expecting. And then there was the book, what to expect the first year. And, you know, for my first child, I read that manual. But as we get stronger in our parenting, we realize, I mean, it's really not all the answers and you need to start trusting your intuition. Books are only as good as like, you know, one size fits all approach, you know, unless you have these exercises to help you explore deeper on your own level for your own child. So that's what I try to do in the first section. You know, that statement that you just said that you're only as happy as your least happiest child. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that statement. Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But do you also agree that it's a very limiting belief? If our happiness is based on our children's happiness, is that happiness? We could be happy without someone else's happiness. Like maybe that's what you're getting at. I'm not sure. But yes, in general, but it happens to be in the parent child relationship. There's something about that umbilical link that like it's different than any other relationship. It really does affect your happiness. You're right. Like you could say with anything else, oh, your happiness shouldn't be related to like your spouse is happy or your best friend is happy. I've said that statement a thousand times because if someone says like, how are you doing? And if one of my children are struggling, I am as miserable as that child, right? Right, right. Through the decades of my life, I've realized that if I don't create my own happiness that's unrelated to anyone else around me, right? then I cannot be the best person. He's falling apart and I'm falling apart. Then who's holding it together? There is that like little flaw in that statement that we all use. It's very real to us. And I think that is where certain tools like mindfulness come in. Like there's a beautiful, beautiful piece by Eckhart Tolle. I don't know if you're familiar with him, where he does this exercise where he says to you, What is the problem right now? Not in five minutes from now, not in 10 minutes from now, now. And he asks you to do that throughout an entire day, right? And you'll find that if you do that over and over and over again, there's very rarely a problem right now. So like, even if your child is having trouble with something, right? Let's say your child's struggling with something right now. They're likely off at school right now, right? So for the next eight hours, you're not really with them right now, right? To be obsessing over what the problem is that they're having, right? So like you can't find your own pockets of happiness, Mm. you know, in whatever's going on. And then when they're home, okay, so you'll deal with it. You'll talk to them about what's going on. But like we can have that umbilical link where we do find that struggle of, you know, being as happy as our least happiest child, but also the lifeline of finding Mm. our life raft within that, of finding our peace, you know, as well, you know? So I sometimes say that to myself when I'm upset about something, you know, like, All problems are either in the past or obsessing about the future most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, what is the problem now in this moment? And if it's not there, take a deep breath and try to give yourself that bit of space, that pocket of air, right? I love it. I love it. You know, part of my work is traveling with women on groups of women to Israel. I've been doing it for over a decade. 
And the first couple of times that I went on these trips, which is leaving the family for 10 days. And I had little, little kids at the time, nursing babies sometimes, even talking about it, I feel like my milk is coming in. It was traumatic as a mom to have to detach. And this was my job. It's like traveling for work, right? Like this was what I needed to do for my job. So I couldn't get out of it. And here I was in Israel so far away. And there's nothing I could do about the late carpool pickup or the the boo-boo. But I was constantly checking the time. What time is it? Are they waking up? I'm going to call them. I want to make sure that they got what they need for school for until I realized I can't do much for them. To think I could control from far away. Yeah. That has carried me very far. My oldest daughter is now in Israel for the year. And she had COVID a couple of weeks ago. And she uh, was in quarantine. And I make chicken soup for my community here in Deerfield. Like we give out quarts of chicken soup. We give out dozens every week. And my daughter, my own daughter, I couldn't bring her soup. She was like, mommy, all I want is chicken soup. And I'm like, ah, nothing right. I could do about it. And that you're so right. Like, if there's nothing you could do about it, you're going to need to let it go. Right. Someone once said to me in a situation like that, they said, you fancy yourself quite powerful. <laughs> and I took that statement and I stepped back and I sometimes say that to myself in moments like that. You're right. Like it's such a reality check. It's like, you're right. I'm not powerful. <laughs> like right. I can't and, do all And there's things. other people that could do it. Right. Yeah. When I left to Israel, left leaving my kids with my husband, it empowered him to step up into his parenting. But I wasn't the one to be there with chicken soup for my daughter. It was my sister-in-law that was there bringing her soup and the dorm mother. And yes, I'm not the only one. We are not all that powerful, but we do need to kind of, you know, do our best. And we have to trust that there will always be helpers that step up when help is needed. Yeah, There's a lot of trust involved in parenting that we're not the only one that can help our children, right? And there's so many people that can. I mean, look at the, the story I told about the teacher that affected my life so much, right? Like she affected the trajectory of, of one of my biggest passions in the world, which is my writing, right? But she didn't like carry you through. You did that. She opened I know, but she gave me the helium of confidence that a first grader needed. Like she could have looked at my 14 page story, which I'm sure was a rambling whatever and said, very nice, you know, but instead she looked at me in the eyes and said, you are going to be a writer someday. And I always oh. felt I could do it after that. And yes, I put in the work all those years, you know, but what made me think as a 17 year old that I could submit a piece to Newsweek and they would take it, you know, but they did. And I did it because I had that confidence that someone looked at me as a seven year old and said I could do it. So why couldn't I do it as a 17 year old? Right. So, you know, I think we have to trust as mothers that there are other people that will also step up and be there for our children. You know, if if they're in Israel and eat chicken soup or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, One of my favorite lines from one of our Jewish sources is, Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor, that it's not incumbent upon you to finish the task. We need to do our efforts. If you didn't get into that Newsweek, you probably would have kept going. That would have been okay. You know, we get, right. we get up, brush ourselves off and keep going. But it's not on us to finish. Like our job as parenting is to create the nourishment, the environment for growth to happen. We give our kids wings to fly, but ultimately how they turn out has nothing to do with our dreams and our hopes for them. We need to be okay with them going on their own journeys. We did it. We gave our parents the gray hairs and we need to make space for our children also to make mistakes along the way and develop into who they need to become. 
Right. For Easier me, said than done. Oh, oh totally. Goodness. What comes to mind for me, and this is actually one of the things I want to talk about in terms of underrated life skills for parenting, in terms of frames, right? Like we can really teach our children. One of the biggest underrated skills I think of parenting is helping teach our children that they're not everything that they think, right? Like that we have all this chatter in our minds. This is one manifestation of what we're talking about, right? Like we're thinking, oh, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do everything for our children, right? But also just there's constant chatter in our minds and we're not everything that we think, right? I think it takes a long time to realize that. Whatever we're thinking, we think is the reality, right? You mean they can't become an astronaut? (laughs) (laughs) Or a firefighter? Come on, that's their... No, I mean, there's every situation that happens, there's storylines that we superimpose on it, right? Like Mm. the same thing could be happening to two people and they impose their own storylines on it, right? So everything that we do, we frame through whatever frames we've been conditioned to look at the world through, right? So our frames are essentially our habits of looking at the world, right? So it could be that some people look through a certain frame, like certain kids could look through a frame of I'm not likable, or I am likable, or I'm stupid, or I'm not stupid, right? That could be one example of it. But there could be other frames, right? Even just the fact that we're constantly superimposing stories on what's going on, right? So I think that with children, a lot of times they interpret what's going on around them in ways that's not helpful to them. And then they, you know, feel badly about themselves in all kinds of different ways. And I don't know one of the answers to the question I wanted to give you about, you know, the underrated life skills that we can help our children with is learning to reframe things and learning to realize that in our own minds, sometimes the stories we're telling ourselves are not the realities of what's going on there, but the reality of what's going on around us. So we can learn to reframe things. So for example, let's say, one of our children comes home and they're very upset about something that happens. A lot of times they take things personally and they don't realize that a lot of what happens has to do with the other person and not with them, right? They think something's wrong with them because someone treated them a certain way. When in reality, it has to do with whatever's going on with the other person. So we can ask them questions. One of the biggest parenting tools is to ask a lot of questions to your children, right? Children don't like when we talk at them, right? A lot of times they tune it out immediately. Like they go into tune out mode. We can ask them questions like, you know, could it be that there was a different side to the story or could it be that there was a different intention that the person had to why they did this? And that sort of helps like reframing happen in our children's minds and helps it like be a better tool for them. Another thing could be to like broaden their scope to try to help them find an opportunity and a difficulty. Another thing could be, could any good come out of this situation or is there anything I can learn or grow from in this situation? Something that came to mind in terms of Jewish sources, you were talking about the one about, you know, it's not up to us to finish which is a beautiful one, you know, that you were thinking of. I was thinking of the one, there's a beautiful Rabbi Simcha Mibunim. He talks about that. There's two very contradictory statements that our rabbis say. They say that on one hand, the whole Chazal tell us, our rabbis tell us that each person should see themselves as if the entire world was created just for them. And on the other side, we're also told by Chazal that every person is just like the dust of the earth, right? We're created from the dust and we go to the dust of the earth. So how do we reconcile these two statements? So he says that every person should have two pockets and they should have each of these statements in one pocket. And that in life, most of the confusion comes from sticking your hands in the wrong pocket for a situation that doesn't warrant that pocket, right? 
So I think that helping our children learn to use the right frame for, you know, the right situation and help them learn to navigate when they're using the wrong frame for the wrong situation can really help them in terms of learning to navigate the world better. And in terms of ourselves as well, in terms of underrated life skills for parenting, a lot of times as parents, we take things personally or we're looking at situations in the wrong way, even with our children. I mean, one thing I talk about in the book also is a very big danger of parenting is that we're always looking at our children, not in the moment, but we're looking at them as like, how could this behavior affect their future, right? Like, oh my God, they're doing this now. So what happens when they're doing this in 10 years from now? Or how is this going to affect them later on, right? But we have to look at them with what I call sham goggles, right? There's this piece in the Torah that talks about Ishmael, Ishmael, when he is actually being thrown out of Abraham's household. And the Torah actually tells Hagar there, his mother, that he's going to be saved because Hashem heard his voice where he is at this point, right? He's not going to be judged for what he turns into in the future. We know Ishmael turned into a very bad person, right? But he's going to be judged for where he is right now. And that's sort of a metaphor for how we have to see our children, right? We have to try to stay in the moment and not think too far ahead to like what certain high behaviors can become or like what happened with them in the past. Like, oh no, I see they're starting this again, right? We have to see them where they are in the moment. And that's sort of how we can best parent them and also best help them grow at the level that they're at without letting too much of our own tendency to live too much in the future or the past affect our parenting. Yeah, I love that. Wow. And also, I guess we should be aware not to put like transference, like things that we have gone through or we, you know, just to put it all or to label, I think that's very dangerous. So not to look too far in the future and just to be hopeful and open with this piece of clay that is literally in your hands. We're molding a human being into, you know, a mensch and an adult and hopefully someone that will contribute a lot to the world. That I love that beautiful teaching of Rabbi Simcha Bonim with the two notes. Like on one hand, we feel on top of the world that we have a child, that we are a parent, that we have this opportunity. But I think it's also really, really important to keep that humility note front and center <laughs> because we really as much say as we have we really have no say i actually had this interesting conversation with my 17 year old son he wanted to go somewhere for his vacation i didn't want him to go with his friends i wanted to do a family outing i had a totally different thing planned in my head and he said to me mom who's in charge like who's going to make this decision i want to do this and i thought to myself He's so right. He's almost an adult. I can't force him anymore at 17 and a half years old to go with my plan. He has his own plan. And right. it takes a lot of humility. So keep yeah. your handy. Like, just know, like, whew, it's not easy. It's not about yeah. your will. There's a lot of prayer involved. There's a lot of, you know, just sleepless nights and hoping for the best. But ultimately, ultimately, we're walking a very humble path as parents. And yeah. outcome is not in our hands. It's just important. Exactly. To I saw an amazing, actually, children's book this past week. It was called Ping. And it was brilliant. The analogy was to ping pong. But it took basically human interaction and it, it reduced it for children into ping pong. And it said, in life, all we are responsible for is our pings. We need to ping bravely. We need to ping freely. We need to put our pings out into the world. And we can't be afraid to do it but the pongs are up to everybody else, right? And it really 
beautifully displayed, right, for the general audience. This wasn't a Jewish book or anything like that, but it showed how in life we're constantly, you know, putting all the pings out there, right? And sometimes the pongs hit us in the face, right? They're not always comfortable, but we have to be prepared. But, you know, we are only responsible for the actions and not the outcomes, right? And the same thing with our children. For some reason, we feel like it's different with our children because they were in our bodies. So we should have more control over the outcomes, right? But my teachers are like, no, mom, we don't want to do that. Like, I'm like, you lived in my stomach. (laughs) Right. How long can I pull that card? Okay, well, I just want to get to some of the tools. I want to hear a little bit about managing expectations, I think is something that we could all learn a lot from because I think a lot of the fallout is just by expectations that were not where they were supposed to be, right? That's usually all of the conflict, like with spouses at work, it's all about expectations. So what can you share with us on this topic? Okay, great. There's a lot on expectation management in the book. And just to go back for a moment before we get there, because I just want to walk a little bit through the rest of the book. So you know, people can understand the pieces of it. So we talked about the first part being about personalization. Second part is the actual pieces to teaching our children happiness. And that is sort of building the seeds, right? In Judaism, we talk about planting these seeds in our children. We talk about chinuch, education, as planting and building. So in this section, we talk about, you know, building grit in our children, acceptance, gratitude, emotional agility, which is sort of like the GPS. That helps you get through life, mindfulness, patience, several more different seeds like that. And then we talk about working on specific outer matters that will help sprouting of these happiness seeds. So we talk about setting up the physical home for happiness. So your environment is a big part of happiness that's often underrated. Slowing down the rush of our daily lives, letting ourselves become more comfortable with letting our children fail. That's very important. I think that touches a little bit on what we've been saying a little bit too. You know, right? We hover a little bit, but sometimes it's actually very helpful to inoculate our children with some failure because that's just part of life, right? And lastly, I talk about plants for growing and maintaining this abundant happiness crop, right? So tackling vulnerability, which is a big part of being part of our society today, right? And then the ever-present important topic of reducing complaining, identifying strengths, things like getting quality sleep and more. So that's the second section. The third section is where I talk about finding happiness as an adult, because right, I talk about the whole book being about a full family approach. And then the fourth is actually finding the resources you need to sort of essentially build your village, right, to support you on this journey. So that is the book in a nutshell. But moving to expectations now, which you're right, is such a crucial topic because expectations, like you said, Eve, are really part of our entire life, right? We can't, (laughs) we cannot get around expectations because they're everywhere that we go, right? So in terms of expectations, when we communicate expectations clearly to our children, right? And we teach them to be crystal clear in communicating their expectations to others. It's one of the best skills we can give them And I've actually heard it called the most underrated life skill in general, expectation management. Because if you think about it, so much unhappiness comes from simple miscommunication of expectations. Okay, think about your own life for a minute, right? Life is a series of expectations, big and small, right? And let me ask you just, Eve, you in general, okay, right? Let's take you, right? Think about it. Why do you feel so bad when things don't work out the way you want them to? Or maybe if someone doesn't behave how you thought they should, or even when a relationship doesn't play out as you expected, right? 
Do you feel a sense of being marginalized or maybe unfairness? What would you say? Totally. It feels, I think everyone thinks that the plan that they have in their head is the way, you know, like, and when it doesn't go that way, it's just probably human nature to think like someone else is messing things up. Right. But if you distilled it back further, you would see that you've mainly been betrayed by the expectations you've carefully set up, like a house of cards over like how you thought the situation should go or the relationship should be or how something should play out, right? Not that you were necessarily wrong by having those expectations, right? But because we form expectations about everything, right? Those are what ultimately set us up for feeling the way we do when something does not happen the way we want it to. So is the key like maybe lowering the bar a little bit? So I'm going to say it a little different for adults and a little different for children. For adults, yes, not necessarily lowering the bar. In some ways it can. I'd say the first step is to be clear about expectations. So first, maybe let's bring it back to children. We're going to talk about being clear about the expectations. And then we'll talk about the second step is once you've assessed the expectations, then you have to even either decide, are you going to manage them by, you know, sort of like volume control? (laughs) You're going to like make it more comfortable by turning it down. You're going to amplify it, right? Or are you going to change the expectations? Are you going to just eliminate the expectations? That's sort of the second step. But the first step is being clear about expectations, okay? So first, let's talk about it with children. On the most basic level, right, we create our children's realities. And often we assume that they understand what civilized living is, right? (laughs) And I think sometimes we expect more from them that they understand more than they actually do. So let's say, for example, we tell themselves, I want you to behave. We tell them that in a situation, okay? So Eve, I've told them, I want you to behave. Let me ask you, do you have any picture in your own brain what situation they were in that I was describing there? That's all I've said. I want you to behave. Can you picture where they were, what they were doing? No, right? Because it was way too vague. Yeah. Or just like sitting like perfect angels on the couch with their hands folded on their laps. I don't know. What does behaving mean? Okay. So now I'm going to say like this. I want you to play in the park nicely. And if you need me, please do not pull on my arm and pull on my skirt. (laughs) Pull my skirt while I'm talking to another adult. Okay. Now you already have a little bit more of a picture in your head, right? We're at a park. Okay. Like, you know, you're giving them a little more information. Okay. Now even better would be to give them a solution, right? Cause you know, they're going to come and need you at some point, you know, they're going to, so you could tell them, I want you to play nicely. Why don't you go play in the sand now? Or what do you want to do first? Okay. You want to play in the swings? Okay, let's go play in the swings. When you need me, come put your hand on my arm. I'll know you need to talk to me and I'll get to you a second later when I finish my sentence. Right. Okay. So that already gives them what they're going to be doing. And when they ultimately do need you, how you want them to come get you. Right. So already you have an expectation for what they're going to be doing and how they're going to communicate with you after that, right? Let's give another example. Let's say instead of saying at the dinner table, don't be such a slob, right? You might think, okay, I'm communicating something to them, but that's way too general. You can specify clear expectations of what that means to you, right? That might mean totally different things for different people. So Mm -hmm. for example, you could say, please, after dinner, please put the condiments away you took out of the fridge and please put your dishes back in the sink when you're done right? That's much more actionable than don't be a slob. They would be thinking, well, what's slobby? I don't know what's slobby. There's a pile of rice under my chair that you could roll a California roll out of, but they (laughs) might not get that that's a problem, right? Mm. So it's about your expectations being specified in a way that's clear to them, right? 
So with older kids, it's mm-hmm. also about making things actionable. So instead of saying something like, hurry up, let's go. Again, way too general. You want to say something like, my car leaves in five minutes. That's actionable. Okay, now they know if they want to ride, they have to be in your car in five minutes. Mm. You know, instead of saying, I'm not going to buy that for you, it's too expensive. You can say, I'm happy to give you $40 for that. If you can come up with the rest of the money, it's yours, right? Mm -hmm. That's again, an actionable statement. And we have to just try to be as clear as possible. I have an entire chapter in the book where I talk about how to make expectation charts for your children about daily activities. Because there's a lot of tension in households about certain times of the day or certain things. Let's say the morning rush, right? Let's say your family has trouble getting out every morning on time. That can be very fixable just by explaining expectations. It could be that your children don't understand what should get done at night Mm. and what should get done in the morning. For example, I made a chart about, okay, at night, everyone's clothes have to get picked out at night. Everyone's bag has to get packed at night with the homework they've done. I had a child that would spend so much time on homework and then just leave it on the table. It was so sad because they put in the work, but you don't get the points if it stays on the table, right? So we had to make a chart about what's going to get done at night in the household and what can be left for the morning, right? And this tool really speaks to the topic that you discuss about setting your environment up for success, like shoes by the door for that kid that's always losing his shoe and then, you know, coming late to the car and everyone's mad, right? right? So those small things that you could do to help your child succeed, right? It's just setting it up for success. Right. Or in Chicago, if you can't find your boots, you can spend a 30 minutes in the morning. So spend the time at night, line the boots up by the door. Everyone put mm-hmm. your boots up at night. But if you make a chart for everybody, like this is the expectations chart. Or even we had a chart of how to eat nicely at a Shabbos meal. <laughs> because you might think that that's obvious to children, but it might be not. Like my husband got so upset when they would all like run away before, like right after Kiddush. Okay. So we made a chart. Okay. Everyone, this is what we expect of you. Like, for washing wow. remotely, you know, like everyone's going to have their Tartor sheet on the table just so that everyone understood what we wanted. And then, you know, we just all knew everyone just has to be on the same page, what this does. And then in the book, I put a template so everyone can like learn to just make their own expectation charts, you know, after that chapter. I don't mean a chart like that we check off. I mean, like a list. I'm going to give you an example for the adults in terms of my own life, where I've learned to communicate expectations and where it's been so helpful to me. I'll give it just recently a story. So recently it was my daughter's bat mitzvah. And I've been down this rodeo before of making a family simcha and realizing that there's so many different people that come in with their own expectations and then people clash. And, you know, it's sometimes been a problem. So I went into it and I said, I'm going to manage everyone's expectations before the weekend arrives. (laughs) So what did I do? Okay, first I knew the grandparents were going to have their own expectations around Corona. I knew I had to explain to them what our community was like in terms of who wore masks, who didn't wear masks. I knew they were going to feel somewhat uncomfortable because, you know, in our community, there are a bunch of people that don't wear masks. And I knew that, you know, they would want masking. So I said, you have to understand it's a highly vaccinated community. There are going to be people that are not wearing masks. How can I make you feel comfortable? So we decided to make them a separate table. You know, we did whatever we did, but this way they knew what they were coming into. They weren't going to show up and be, you know, shocked and feel annoyed or whatever. We did that, you know. Then I had a, you know, a cousin coming in that was coming in at a very inconvenient time. I said, 
here's when I'll be able to hang out with you. Here's when I will not be able to hang out with you. Just so you don't feel slighted when I'm setting up the bat mitzvah, you're coming in like a millisecond before. Let's make the times when we will be able to hang out. I'm happy you're coming in. You know, we worked all that out. <laughs> Got my daughter down, you know. You're the bat mitzvah girl. I want you to feel special. Let's talk about your expectations of what you want out of that weekend, how I can make them happen for you. You know, I went through everything I could. You know, I had friends of mine that I had, you know, helped, you know, whenever they had a simcha, I had zero expectations back about whether they would help me or not. So that way I was not offended if people offered to help or not. I went and saying, it's all good. Even after yeah. all that effort, were there any expectations that were not met or, or did it work? I'm going to tell wow. you it worked. It worked. And you know, I don't know why, for sure there are things that can come up, but I often find that like once you're in the throes of the simcha, a lot of like the other stuff falls away because you're just so happy, you know, at the actual thing. But it, it helps because you've talked it out and you've helped to manage the expectations around you so that, you know, you kind of know what you're working with, at least for me. I can't say maybe it works for everybody, but I definitely find that getting the expectations on the table going in it just helped me so much in this simcha versus simchas I've made before where I didn't talk to everybody about the expectations beforehand and there were some expectation disasters. You know what I mean? So amazing. So you. we're going to have to end pretty soon. Our time is coming to a close, believe it or not. But maybe you want to end with just one more favorite tool. And I feel like we've gotten a lot. We spoke about managing expectations. We spoke about setting ourselves up for success and environment and, you know, mind, action. I want you to talk, maybe you could close with a little bit about the most annoying part of being a parent, which is handling the fetching. Sure. So some fetching can be definitely cathartic, right? Like a good cry. So some fetching is, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, a natural part of life. And we have to expect it from our children, just like we expect it from ourselves. But it can definitely become toxic. I'd say there's actually research out there. It was actually done at Clemson University by a Dr. Kowalski who found there are three types of fetchers and they're sort of different adaptive benefits to the fetching. Okay. So one type, and I'm sure, you know, different children fall into these different categories that you could sort of think of your own children and know which ones they are. So the first one is the venter. That's sort of the one that gets a cathartic release from it, right? They vent about something, they fetch about it, and then they move on, right? They're done with it, right? The next one is the sympathy seeker. That's the one that they get a jolt from the complaining, right? It sort of like gives them that like jolt they need, like maybe it's the attention from you or whatever they need from it. So it does actually kind of help them to do it. So, you know, you kind of have to indulge them a little bit in it. Mm. But the third kind is the chronic complainer, you know, and those are the ones, I have one of those in my household more when they were younger, but they would just kind of get stuck in this mental loop. And you would see it made them feel worse, right? Like they would just fetch about it and then just kind of get stuck in the like, woe is me and keep going on and on and on and on. And that's the kind where it literally becomes addictive. Like when we complain like that, our bodies actually release cortisol and it, it literally becomes addictive. A couple things we can do when we have a complainer like this in our lives, or it could be an adult in our lives also, right? It doesn't just have to be our children. So the first thing we can do is our brains literally cannot focus on two things at once. So one thing we can do to sort of get them out of complaining mode is to break that mode by getting them to focus on something involving gratitude. So it could be as simple as like, let's say they come home and they're just like, I had the worst day ever, right? So you can say to them, okay, great. We're going to tell me everything that was wrong with your day. But can you just tell me first 
two good things that happened today. Just, I want you to find two good things, right? I know it sounds corny, but already in terms of the neural pathways, it helps to sort of break the loop of negativity and the negativity bias in the brain. Okay, so that's one thing. Another thing you can do is to sort of teach your children, believe it or not, to complain better. Okay, like you can tell them, okay, I'll listen to your complaining, but if you want it to be something that's going to be adaptive or something that's going to be, you know, worthwhile, because when they catch you, that's one thing, but when they go into the world, right, you also want it to be something that if they're going to complain, they're going to make it something that's worthwhile, right? They're going to like, if they're going to complain to their teacher, you know, they don't just want it to be that they're whining. It wants to be that they're going to like, you know, they're convincing the teacher, whatever they need, right? To get what they need, maybe to redo the test or, you know, to get a better grade. You teach them there needs to be some kind of end goal to your complaining, right? If you're just going to complain, you're never going to get what you need. You have to make it something that's going to get you to your end goal. So the four components are, first, you teach them, you need to have a clear purpose. Like if you're going to complain, it can't just be like, a big way. You know what I mean? What is your purpose here of complaining? Okay. What are you actually complaining about? Okay. The other thing is you have to start with something positive, right? Okay. What is the positive piece here, right? Okay. Especially if it's an interpersonal complaint, it makes the other person less defensive, right? If you start, you have to realize, you know, whenever someone comes to you with a problem, if they start with something negative, you're already on the defensive, right? The third thing is to be specific about the complaint. And the fourth thing is to try to end on a positive. Think about, let's say you go to a store and you end with, and I'm never shopping here again. They're not going to like have any reason to help you fix the problem, right? Because it's like, well, okay, then what's the point of me helping you? You're already never shopping here again, right? So, you know, the teacher children, when they go out in the world, if they're going to complain about something, you have to make it in a way that people are going to want to try to help you. Okay. So again, that doesn't help you in the house when they're fetching to you. But already that, you know, so I'd say that's when they're, you know, out in the world complaining, but in your own house, try to help them see, try to break it by, you know, trying to get them to help on focus on something with gratitude, try to help them maybe just channel it, you know, involving something positive. I also feel that sometimes just smiling and being a positive force does a lot. Like they, it goes in, you know? Yeah. Well, Beth, thank you. This was fabulous. I know that there's so much more that we didn't get to, but I know that, you know, you're local, so maybe we could continue with conversation and we'd love to have you at our community and you could come and teach more to the Lachaim Center. But how could our listeners find you if they want to hear more, if they want to read your book, what's the best way of reaching you? Thank you. So everyone could go on my website, bethperkel.com. I have a bunch of my articles up there and there's a link to my book. The full title is Light at the Beginning of the Tunnel, Wiring Our Children for Happiness. And it can also be purchased on mosaicapress.com. Actually, it's on sale right now. So it's a good time to buy it there, mosaicapress.com. But there's also a link on my website, bethperkel, B-E-T-H-P-E-R-K-E-L, bethperkel.com. Thank Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, wonderful. We'll hope to see you soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thank you for being a part of our community. There is so much more coming your way. Stay tuned and have a great, inspired day.